Dennis, uh, we've been talking about popular herbs that have been used uh, over the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about mm. them and you've looked at parsley, raspberry leaf, chamomile. And uh, these are mostly from Western countries or, and Europe, perhaps, yes. and the USA. Yes. But today you're going to spread oh. our wings <laughs> a little. We're going to become multicultural today. And we're going to have a look at herbs from other cultures which are making an impact in this wonderful country of Australia. Fascinating studies today on three herbs that we haven't spoken about very frequently before. Health and naturally. And Dennis Stewart, uh, you know, we're looking at other cultures. Correct. And, and the, herbs, the, of, course. <laughs> of course. There's a very good reason for that, uh, Jane. What I have noticed over quite a few years now that uh, many of my clients or patients or interested people that come in to see me are people that come from other societies, more traditional cultures, and there is an innate interest uh, in these people in traditional remedies. It's nothing novel to them. It's nothing unusual. I saw a gentleman yesterday who had very bad psoriasis and he is reluctant to go down the pathway of Western medicine because he knows the ramifications and the side effects of one of the drugs that was offered to him. But it comes from a culture, um, an Indian, uh, Ceylonese culture, which has great regard for the use of traditional remedies and speaks of his uh, time in Ceylon when, uh, with this, when this condition asserted itself that he went to a local uh, practitioner, a uh, traditional medicine practitioner, who practiced essentially an Ayurvedic system of medicine and with the use of herbs and some dietary change, his condition went into long-term remission. He came to Australia and probably as a result of stress and anxiety settling in, which is difficult for these dear people, um, his psoriasis reasserted itself. And yesterday we had a very good discussion and it came to me that he's representing an increased population of people that are coming into this country uh, from traditional cultures, and these are very educated people, uh, uh, the best migrants in the world, in my opinion, and bringing their skills and their culture with them. And we had a good discussion as to why there is this reverence for traditional medicine. And in fact, one of his relatives is a Western-trained uh, doctor who will recommend herbal medicine. And uh, I thought to myself, well, I talk frequently about herbs, but predominantly due to my background training and clinical practice, they're mainly what we call Western herbs. But I've had some fascinating experiences, not just recently talking uh, to people such as that gentleman yesterday, but over the years, I've met some fascinating people, very well educated, some of whom have attended my, my graduate program, particularly in Melbourne. On one occasion, um, a gentleman who was a gastroenterologist, a Lebanese gastroenterologist and a very devout Muslim, he attended all my lectures and was one of my best students, even though he was a practicing a specialist, a gastroenterologist. And on the last night of the course, he took me out uh, to a restaurant. We had a lovely meal. And at the end of it, he gave me a, a book a presentation, and the, the name of the book was called Medicine of the Prophet. And uh, I, I thought that was wonderful and very gracious of him, 
but didn't start using it or reading it for quite a few years. When I began to read it, I realised the wealth of knowledge that there was in that society, in that culture, that Middle East culture, a wealth of knowledge pertaining to the application of natural medicines, traditional medicines, to pretty serious disease consequences. So I thought uh, over the last week or so, when I came across this book again, looking at it, but particularly with reference to one of the herbs I'll mention in a moment, that I should start to look at some of these herbs uh, more in detail and fascinate our listeners with some of the potential of herbs that are latent in these other societies, which have been used hundreds, if not thousands of years, and being used professionally and competently under a state registration system to treat diseases which we in the West treat with powerful pharmaceuticals. Now, I'm not knocking pharmaceuticals, as listeners know. I use them myself. But here is a spread of cultures that are now in this country bringing with them a reverence and regard for traditional medicine. And I'm going to make a statement now to young general practitioners out there, and not only young general practitioners, it's going to become increasingly necessary for general practitioners to become fluent in understanding many of the traditional medicines that these people have used, that will be spoken about in a consultation, and there needs to be a, an awareness of the regard for traditional medicine, usually based on herbs that these people have in order to be able to meet their medical needs. That has been my experience, and I mention that today, particularly to practitioners out there. You will need to familiarise yourself with remedies, traditional systems of medicine, some of which we'll talk about today, and in a moment I'm going to talk about one that is just at our back door, so to speak, Java kidney tea. It is too, and you are FM's health naturally. But Dennis, you mentioned Java kidney tea. Isn't that a lovely... Uh, terminology, Java kidney tea. Let me just explain something about this fascinating herb. It is fascinating, but I made a remarkable discovery about this herb. Um, I was preparing a series of lectures for a course on uh, Australian Indigenous herbs, herbs that grow in Australia that have medicinal values. And I was getting material together for it. And uh, I, was I became increasingly surprised at the way in which many so-called Southeast Asian remedies have now become resident in Australia and growing prolifically. And one of them, um, which I'd always had an interest in uh, due to reading about it in other literature, was this herb called Java kidney tea, botanically known as Orthosiphon stamineus. And I found that the herb grows in great proliferation, almost as a weed, in the northern parts of Australia, mm. in, in the top of Queensland, uh, Northern Territory. And interestingly, I was able to get hold of some um, plants, if you like, of Java kidney tea and proved, as my garden at home will show, that it grows prolifically like a weed. And yet, in my experience of my recent reading, it is likely to become one of the most important herbs uh, in recent times with great potential that up to this point, I don't believe, can be competed against by other so-called Western uh, kidney remedies. This herb is the backbone 
of a lot of mainstream medical treatment for kidney conditions and, and bladder conditions, kidney and bladder conditions, ranging from fairly straightforward conditions such as what we call irritable bladder, uh, mild cases of cystitis. It's even used popularly in Southeast Asia, particularly in Malaysia and in Indonesia, as a remedy to help promote the passage of renal calculi or kidney stones. But I'll talk in a moment about one uh, great possibility associated with it that I have demonstrated in my own use of Java kidney tea in both my practices. I'll please talk about that in a moment, Jane. Fascinating. Betty has rung in. Mm. That's why it'll be in a moment. From Wool's End, hello, Betty. Now, your question's about hair loss. Yes, I'm an old woman, 87, and I know you do lose your hair, but I've always had very thick hair. Yes. And my father used to say that was my only redeeming feature. <laughs> uh, but nowadays, in the last 12 months, it's coming out, and not in patches, just thinning out so much. And I thought, is there anything I can use to keep my redeeming feature? <laughs> oh, that's a big question, isn't it? That is a big question. <laughs> this, this might radically change your life, Betty. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. They talk about reversal. Now, look, it's, it's, it's not a condition that one uh, easily uh, rectifies. Uh, but over the years, there are a couple of things that I have found useful. Let me put it that way. And these things are not expensive, uh, they're safe, and they're readily available. My approach generally to this problem, and it's, Betty, it's a very common problem, as you would expect, and yeah, ladies at your stage of life. Um, yeah. The first thing I would say is that the mineral silica uh -huh. is both in naturopathic medicine and in herbal medicine seen as a useful supplement to be taken as a nutritional supplement to address some of the so-called nutritional deficiency ideas behind the, the loss of hair. Right. The, the herb is very, very confidently recommended in the Blackmore's literature, which I refer to frequently, as one of their remedies uh, for uh, hair loss. So it's what I would recommend, and fortunately... Um, not only is that, that uh, just a brand, there are other brands as well as readily available from our health food stores or pharmacies. That's the first thing I would, would uh, recommend. Years ago, silica, S-I-L-I-C-A, silica. And you'll usually find it will come in preparations that are, are named after its use, like hair, skin and nails or wor words to that effect on the labelling of it. A competent retailer uh, in either a pharmacy or a health food store would be able to help you out quite confidently with it. Now, um, there are um, other approaches to it. One um, simple thing to do is to acknowledge the way in which two herbs used topically are considered to, put it this way, contribute to the health of the scalp and may be also lessen hair loss one of them is the herb rosemary, and the other one is stinging nettle. Now, stinging nettle in, in the form that you would be using it would, would not be the herb itself, uh, which does sting, but an extract of it, usually combined um, with, with rosemary, is a topical application that, again, uh, is recommended in a lot of the traditional literature. And I've, over the years, spoken to clients and patients who will say 
that the use of that topical um, preparation, a shampoo if you like, or a, a scalp lotion has lessened their hair problems. So try Absolutely. that as a start. It's no, no guarantees for you, Betty, but if, oh, if, you, if, if you suddenly see your youth returned, ring, give us a ring, will you? Because I might, <laughs> I I might take it on board much. myself. <laughs> Health naturally. And we're talking about Java kidney tea, Dennis, and uh, you promised to tell us another outstanding mm-hmm. way in which it's an effective herb. And the comments that I'm going to make, I should preface by saying, are based on some very sound information uh, written in a book called Herbal Medicine uh, by um, a very, very, very well-known German doctor, uh, Dr. Rudolf Weiss. I refer to his work on this program frequently. I consider him to be one of the most outstanding medical practitioners uh, and expert uh, herbalist of the of the 20th century he's passed on now but in that text he took up a java kidney tea from a medical perspective and presented it as one of two herbs the other herb was the herb golden rod which interestingly is in blossom now all over the hunter but he saw java kidney tea as having a significant medical use now let me emphasize this a significant medical use based largely on the experience of practitioners in uh, Southeast Asia, particularly Indonesia, using it and that knowledge being passed on at that stage to the Dutch. And, of course, the Dutch uh, took it up and began to see the virtues of it, and it became, in fact, included in one of the European pharmacopoeias. Weiss spoke of it as being one herb that has the pen- the potential to lessen what I refer to as the failing kidney. Now, what do we mean by the failing kidney? I should preface this by saying this is a condition that obviously needs to be treated by a healthcare professional, and I'm not in any way at all encouraging uh, people to bypass medical treatment. What I am saying, however, is that my recommendation, and in fact my prescribing it, to a limited number of people in a fairly desperate state, in a couple of cases, you might say five minutes from dialysis, has seen a stabilisation of their kidney function, which in one case particularly, a lady in the, in the Hunter Valley, she may be listening to this program, has kept her stable with an increase in one of her kidney markers, which is unusual, and as a result of that, uh, has not had to uh, exceed to dialysis, her kidney is stable, being well monitored, well monitored, as I would insist, by her medical practitioner, who regularly carries out the appropriate uh, blood tests to see how her kidney markers are going. That is an area, that is an area, a medical area, that I believe should be seriously looked at by medical professionals, where you have patients experiencing uh, kidney decline that is not responding as well as it should do or perhaps would uh, one would like it to by using conventional approaches. The herb is safe but needs to be used in proper dosages and I'm not going to talk about dosages because that is something that is more in the medical domain but using it si- simply as a, as a herbal tea it can in fact be used very safely to lessen 
the ongoing development of what we call renal calculi, that is kidney stones, where the use of it seems to lessen the occurrence of calculi and also due to a suspected widening of the ureters as a result of prescribing the herb, it precipitates uh, an easier passage, particularly of small, smaller calculi. So uh, overall, this is an exciting herb at our back door, which grows in Australia. As far as I'm aware, it is not uh, commercially uh, manufactured or extracted in this country. And I believe based on the Southeast Asian experience, where, by the way, in Malaysia, the herb is called Kumis Kuching. Uh, we should take on board the way in which this herb is the basis of many medications prescribed medically and by traditional therapists for a whole range of kidney problems. One, a very serious problem where the herb may offer some hope to stave off or lessen the deterioration in kidney function. That now, is a simple remedy. It sounds like a mm, simple mm, remedy. Mm. And um, you, you've been talking that uh, recently about how herbs, many herbs, it's getting hard to get hold of oh, them. absolutely. Either for importing absolutely. or whatever. So to find one that is actually happy to grow you, even in these climes. Listeners might be... To major on that point that you've made about... The, the difficulty in getting hold of sir, uh, herbs, um, I sought to purchase, uh, I'm not sure whether it was 50 or 100 kg of the dried herb, and I went to one of our good suppliers who imports many of the medicinal herbs. To start with, he had never heard of it. Secondly, he fished around and found that he could bring it in, but would have to bring it in in a very crude form and to bring it in, and I had to pay for it, it was very expensive. Now, this is a herb, let me emphasise again, that once you've got it in your garden, you've got it forever. I can bring, I can bring you in a sample if you like, Jane, <laughs> but it grows prolifically, uh, and I'm suspecting now, as a result of our talking about this, that some of our listeners, some of whom, by the way, have asked me to run a seminar on, on herb growing, some of them may take up my challenge and see the Java kidney tea is going to make a name in naturopathic and herbal medicine circles and I hope being looked at seriously by uh, medical practitioners and plant chemists, it is a herb that grows here already prolifically but yet we still at this stage have to purchase it and bring it in from overseas as, as a dried herb. That counts as uh, health quality, does it? Or? Uh, well, importing it from overseas doesn't necessarily mean that it is free of contamination. One has to mm. always carry out appropriate quality control measures on it. Yes. But if it's grown here and grown properly, it's easier to maintain mm. a hygienic, uh, chemical-free cultivation of the herb, which, by the way, let me come back to the point, you go to North Queensland and it grows like a garden weed. I had a gentleman who listens to this program regularly from the Atherton Tablelands, uh, Danny, who studied with me, says it grows in the parks around here. That's at the Atherton. So there's a herb that I've not spoken a lot about, but by gee, I tell you what, I would not be able these days to confidently manage some of the uh, chronic kidney conditions that I see 
without this herb. I depend on it so greatly. Now we've had a call from someone who's mm. not on the line anymore, mm. but she mm. would like to know which herb we're talking about. Oh, okay. It's worth saying okay. it again. Uh, I'm talking about the herb known as, well, the product known as Java kidney tea. The uh, herb itself um, is, is just, well, botanically it's known as orthosiphon stamineus, but if you remember it as Java tea or Java kidney tea, or if you want to really be trendy and remember it by its name as Kumas Kuching, which is the Malaysian name for it, uh, you'll do well. And uh, uh, I would suggest hop on the, the net, have a look at it, and you'll be amazed at the way in which this herb is being used not only for kidney conditions, but for another serious condition that I might talk about another day. Kumas Kuching, Java kidney tea, orthosiphon stamineus, being its botanical name. There you go. Enough names, mm, I mm. hope, to keep yeah, you. Yeah. So is it the leaf of the herb that is it, used? It is the leaf primarily, but the aerial part also. Okay. The beautiful spike of, um, of flowers, mm. which looks like cat's whiskers. And this is another common name that's given to the herb. I should bring it in and put it on, on the 2NUR on the website. Yes. But it it's, literally does look like... Cat's Whiskers. Yes. So uh, <laughs> if that lady wanted to know another name for it, it's Cat's Whiskers, and, and I'd be very happy <laughs> to give you a sample of it because once you put it in the ground, man, you've got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that might make us just say, well, maybe a pot first. A pot, eh? a pot, yes, well, that's right. <laughs> so um, that looks as though it's... And does it come from Indonesia? I mean, it's got the name Java tea. Yeah, look, it does, but uh, it flows way up the Southeast Asian yeah. axis, so uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, that part of the world, yes. it would grow prolifically. And hence, hence, the way in which it has been so popularly used in that culture, and here we are, really part of Southeast Asia, yeah, only a back door to it, uh, and yet still, even in naturopathic and herbal medicine circles, I doubt whether the herb is being taught being understood, or certainly being prescribed. That worries me because uh, I've led the Australian scene in teaching and education and practice, but we've been very much bogged down with the Anglo-American, uh, European style of herbalism, which is great, which is great. But goodness me, we've got to broaden our horizons and take on board some of my comments today that, mate, we are a multicultural society. We have people that are used to traditional remedies, that want traditional remedies, that are disappointed when they present to mainstream medicine. They're offered medications which they're reluctant to take. They want some of the stuff, so to speak, that they've been used to in their own culture. And they know it works. They know it works. It is mm, 18 mm, mm. to... 12 and uh, oh, Sally has said that the, uh, in fact, the French name for the herb, Java, is uh, moustache de chat, which means, of course, the cat's moustache. So that's cat's that? whisper. Thank uh, you, Sal. To NURFM's Health Naturally. And we're taking your calls. Amanda has rung in from Cooks Hill. You've got some information for us. Yes. Um I've had a problem with my hair not growing in spaces. Yes. And what, ha and what happened was I changed my shampoo to mm. a keratin shampoo mm -hmm. by Asana. Mm -hmm. um, I, I found that 
um, my hair grew um, a, a lot quicker than it normally would. That's good. Could you say the name of that again, Amanda? Um, Esano, E-S-S-A-N-O, and the, and the shampoo's called Keratin, K-E-R-A-T-I-N. Okay, Keratin. Okay, and that, that helped you? Yes, yes, don't Good. get the Argonaut one, because it, it um, stinks a bit. Okay. <laughs> this one ticks all the boxes. Thank, so thanks thank for you, Amanda. Call, Amanda. I might use a bit. <laughs> Sounds good. James has rung in from Highfield. Hello, James. You've got a problem with arthritis in the neck, yes? Yeah. Hello, James. Uh, the you, you have some osteoarthritis in the neck? Yeah, I've, I've been taking the osteoarthritis, which is another option, but it's supposed to cause damage to your kidneys. Could could you say that again for me, James? It's coming through a little bit um, patchy. Subdued. Yeah, patchy. Mm. Could you say that again? Yeah, I've got. Um, I've been taking osteoarthritis. Yes. And it's, is there another option that you would recommend? With well, my approach to to um, this condition is to uh, fall back on using two of the most popular uh, products with a with a with a fair amount of evidence behind them. And that is, I, I base a lot of my prescribing on the glucosamine and chondroitin combination. But um, I, in my own product, I have also appended to it uh, a product that I haven't spoken a lot about, but which has uh, a great deal of worldwide recognition. And that is the New Zealand green lip muscle. Um, it found a, a great deal of uh, reputation as the, as the result of work done of all places in Edinburgh at a particular outpatients clinic where a very compromised lady uh, with um, a completely ankylosed hip joint uh, was treated uh, in desperation by a medical practitioner who had uh, given up on everything else with the New Zealand green lip muscle with a remarkable um, improvement in a condition which led to uh, an article occurring in The Lancet, uh, the British Medical Journal, uh, about this case of the New Zealand green lip muscle. So I, I just don't use uh, glucosamine and chondroitin on its own. In my own product, I tend to incorporate the New Zealand green lip muscle. I also will incorporate what we know about uh, bioflavonoids and the gentle progressive effect that they have in helping subdue inflammatory activity. Um, I tend to see that as an approach which has helped uh, very many of my patients and clients with various forms of osteoarthritis. I'd give that, uh, regardless of what you're doing, I would uh, take those recommendations on board. Glucosamine and chondroitin uh, in conjunction with the New Zealand green lip muscle, in conjunction with uh, bioflavonoids, um, I think that would be useful. Where would I get that from? Well, you could go to your health food store, always go to your local supplier first take on board what i have said um you're at highfields uh, if you went to warner's bay or charlestown uh, they would have products that would be consistent with what i have said there try to get products that contain the blend and what you then get is the summation of each of their each of their benefits one thing that i uh, looked uh, overlooked there was that the inclusion of the enzyme bromelain, write that down, bromelain, in a compound product 
including what I've already mentioned, but incorporating bromelain, which is well-defined as a mild anti-inflammatory agent, I don't think uh, you can go much better than that as providing a, a fairly well-documented approach to osteoarthritis. Bromelain, huh? Bromelain. Bromelain. Yeah. 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 It comes right, from the pineapple. So yeah. See how you go, but so, um, you yeah. should do okay. Yeah, all the very best with that, James, uh, to a new RFM's Health Naturally. And we're talking about herbs from non-European, yeah, non-Western yeah. cultures, Dennis. And fenugreek is yeah. one that comes up. Well, look, this: uh, the more one studies fenugreek, the more one um, can understand why in Islamic medicine, in Islamic medicine... Um, where um, great regard is given to the Quran and to the comments of, of Muhammad and some of those that wrote about his words, um, the, the herb fenugreek is extolled greatly. In fact, I mentioned a book today that was given to me by a lovely um, Islamic doctor in, in Melbourne, a specialist gastroenterologist, uh, and called The Medicine of the Prophet. And I was looking at it quickly today in preparation for talking briefly about fenugreek. And in the reference to fenugreek, there is a comment there, purportedly uh, a statement that was made by Muhammad, where he said, in my, if my community had only known what there is in fenugreek, they would have bought and paid for it in gold. Now, what does that mean? That means that in Islamic culture and in Islamic society, and in the Islamic system of medicine, this herb is one of those that has been extolled even by its leader and prophet. Now, is this over a shooting? No. Just as a little aside before I talk about its characteristics, the uh, Muslim contribution to medicine is great. The, the West went into decline uh, before the Middle Ages uh, they had largely departed from much of the, the Greek literature, the writings of, of, uh, of, of the great Greek philosophers, Hippocrates and Galen and, and, and others, and there was a bit of a void. When the Islamic Revolution took place, what happened was there was a great flourishing of scholarship. And what happened here was, in the Islamic Revolution, they gathered together a lot of the writings and ideas of the Greeks, and they took on board the, a lot of the Greek ideas about the practice of medicine, and they developed what was called the Dib, or Unani, system of medicine, which is very similar to Ayurvedic medicine, uh, based, if you like, um, on, on an energetic system of medicine. And one of their great contributions uh, to medicine of, of all time was the contribution of, uh, of one of their great prophets, um, he was called, in fact, uh, Avicenna, or that's how we pronounce his name, A-V-I-C-E-N-N-A. And he lived um, around about 980 to about 1037. That is the age, or that is a lifespan that was given to this remarkable man, Avicenna. He's known in literature today as the Prince of Medicine. And he wrote a book which is still foundational in, in Islamic medicine and, and referred to by those of us that have regard for traditional medicine. And he wrote a book called The Canon of Medicine, a remarkable work. And in that, he would 
uh, expound the virtues of the great herb fenugreek, which is part and parcel of Middle Eastern medicine, and also it is used predominantly as a food. Now, in, in, in Middle Eastern medicine, and those of us that know of its benefits use it similarly, it has a number of profound uses. One of them I'll just deal with very quickly because time's just about gone. This herb is used popularly in Middle Eastern culture and in, in, in Islamic medicine or in, in Islamic cuisine as a herb with great potential for women. The herb contains a lot of what we call hormonal characteristics and as such explains why the herb or the food and remember, this is substance, if one is going to use it for these purposes, the, the, the food, if you like, or the herb has to be taken in stipulated levels as a food on a daily basis. But this herb, due to its characteristic hormonal chemistry, is a herb that is used to promote fertility. And at a time when many of the uh, Western herbs that I have depended on, which are no longer available, we are falling back on the herb fenugreek due to its similar chemistry to some of the Western herbs that are used in functional infertility protocols. So it's a great herb for that purpose and explains why uh, Middle Eastern women living in a traditional culture will access it uh, to deal with um, a pregnancy that's not occurring, put it that way. Equally importantly, it explains my observation that uh, Middle Eastern women living a traditional culture seem to move through uh, the from a premenopausal status to a postmenopausal status with fewer dramas that Western women seem to experience. This is because of the phytoestrogens found. The phytoestrogens found in fenugreek. It's a lovely, simple, inexpensive herb and food that may be able to buffer some of the symptoms of the menopause. And our last word will go to Leslie from Salamander Bay. You've got uh, something to say on kidney tea, Leslie. Yeah, hi, Dennis. Hello, Leslie. Could I just ask you, I'm, I'm probably being um, asking an impossible question, but I have a, a brother in his late 70s who has cancer um, and various other things with heart, diabetes, you name it, he has it. He was supposed to be gone last year this time, but he's hanging on. Yes. One of one of the things that we were talking about last night, I was asking him about kidneys and things, and he said, no, mine's gone. And then here you are today talking about, you know, this. Is, is this sort of not really an option for someone in his position? Well, put it this way. Uh, obviously, his condition is very forlorn, and the prognosis yes, is. is very forlorn. Um, yes. I can't make any other comment than saying that uh, Java kidney tea has got little toxicity, and if I and I'll pitch it by saying if I were in his condition and wanting to maintain a little bit of kidney function, it's one of the substances that I'd seriously consider. Okay, so there's something to follow up on, Leslie, and uh, let's hope your brother benefits from yes, of that. Course, of course. We've been talking about uh, herbs today from other cultures. I will take it up a bit again. Multicultures. There's I, I more done, to talk about. I haven't done justice to 
uh, to Fenugreek. Fenugreek. I, I hope I've tantalised listeners <laughs> by encouraging them to see that we haven't got all the answers, uh, that uh, the, the Middle East Islamic culture has an incredible contribution to make and has made an, an incredible contribution in the past, particularly in the work of Avicenna, the Prince of Medicine, who wrote the Canon of Medicine. Thank you, Dennis Stewart. That is Health Naturally for today, and we'll be back next Friday.